is the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. Way more interesting than anything you're listening to on NPR. Probably less exciting than what you're watching on OnlyFans. Bruh. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. I am your host, Ashton Cohen. I'm joined today by Steve Anderson. He is the author of The Bezos Letters. It's a... uh, book which encapsulates the principles that I would say define Bezos and Amazon, uh, define the Bezos and Amazon mindset that made the company what it is today. Uh, so I was I was interested in this book uh, because, well, Bezos, like him or not, is one of the most consequential entrepreneurs, people in business, um, basically in American history, probably in human history. Um, and so I think it's important that we sort of analyze his thinking, what he's about, how he got in this position, how Amazon became what it was. So I, I think this is a very fascinating sort of topic to, to look at that. Uh, Steve, thanks so much for being with me. Ashton, it's great to be here with you. And, and I agree. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's absolutely. fascinating, obviously, enough to uh, to write a book about it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's we're talking quarter century, basically, starting from yep. ground zero into becoming uh, one of the biggest market cap companies in the entire world, uh, creating the wealthiest man in the world who has uh, you know, tons of influence over major parts of the economy. And so I think it's very useful to be able to sort of look at that and, and see how it happened and and what it's all what he's all about what the company's all about yeah i think mindset um and and again i agree with you whatever you think about bezos himself i think you have to agree he's been pretty successful so Mm -hmm. are there things that we can learn from that success that you can apply to your own business and i think frankly even potentially other kinds of relationships Mm -hmm. that you have so no absolutely um what when i first start off sort of more macro with, and we could sort of, we could sort of take it from there. Um, how did this, so love, love, something that's often forgotten is that Amazon was a dot-com company mm-hmm. in the late nineties and 2000, early two thousands. One of many, there was, there was no real indication that Amazon was going to take over the world. Uh, it was competing with many other very promising companies those companies all, many of them went away and failed. The vast majority of them did. Uh, Amazon went down to, I think, like $6 at, from, from yep. at its trough. Yep, exactly. stayed in the game and then continued to just innovate and take more and more market share, whereas everyone else, uh, many of their competitors, many of their not only direct competitors, but people in the technology industry that had billions of dollars of capital failed. So what is it about what principles, what value systems, what, what's Bezos's 
hierarchy of principles and values that contributed to, the, to its success and, and to where it is today? What, how would you rank the hierarchy of values? You mentioned 14, but what's sort of his, his starting framework? Well, I think a couple of things. And so again, a little background, actually, Amazon uh, website.com went live in 1995 in July. And then they went public in uh, May, I believe of 1997. So the first shareholder letter that he wrote was 1997, which was came out in April of 98. And he's written a, a letter every year since, uh, including the 2020 letter, which came out in uh, April of uh, this year, 2021. And I think it part of what really fascinated me when I um, started looking at Amazon, and, and, and Ashton, you're exactly right, part of what I was looking at is uh, coming out of the insurance industry and talking and researching and writing about technology in that industry for a long time, I, I really started with this idea, is the biggest risk businesses face today actually not taking enough risk? Mm -hmm. And I would say it, from my view, when I read the shareholder letters, the thing that stood out to me is actually Bezos is very much a risk taking person. Um, I, I call him a master of risk because of how he uses it strategically. So what does that mean? Well, for Amazon growing, one of, in fact, my first growth principle is called encourage successful failure. And this mindset that in order to invent, you have to experiment. And by its very nature, an experiment means you're going to fail. So if you're going to invent uh, and again, his phrase he uses a lot is inventing on behalf of the customer. Mm -hmm. So being willing to experiment, suffer failures, learn from it and keep going, I think is one kind of core idea. Unfortunately, too many businesses today are afraid of failure or are successful and that success is actually their biggest risk because it makes them complacent he was not willing to be complacent. So encouraging successful failure. I think the other thing, and he talks about uh, really both of these in that first letter is customer obsession. And it's a very interesting phrase because most companies think about a customer journey, customer focus, right? Customer experience. Bezos uses that, the phrase customer obsession and the mission is for Amazon to be the most customer-centric company in the world. Um, and so those are a couple things that I think set him apart or make him stand out it is a different mindset. And I, I think the other thing I would say is he, he thinks very counterintuitively than a most business owners. Um, and lots of examples of that. But he's willing to invest and create new ways of doing things if they serve the customer first. And, and I think I, that to me is a key, that risk. Uh, it, one of the phrases he uses for companies that aren't successful is unwarranted risk aversion. Mm -hmm. And that's just the opposite of what he has done and what he thinks. Yeah. You know, when I was reading your book and sort of doing a, a deeper dive on 
some of his more candid interview moments, trying to sort of analyze it from that perspective. Because I think with with the the media, especially when you're the wealthiest man in the world, um, you know you're you're made to fall into a certain mold, right? So some mm-hmm. people see him as a supervillain. Um, you know, and Amazon's immense power over the economic and retail landscape, you know, is bound to create problems, right? And society mm-hmm. as anything does. So one of the, as, as I sort of read about him and sort of look into him, he is one of the most, uh, I would say, well thought out individuals. I think you that you've anybody's ever seen. Um, he has, it's almost very there's a lot of overlap and, and I'm a big Musk fan. Okay. Uh, there's a, there seems to be a lot of overlap between those two when you hear them speak. So one of the other things I sort of noticed is obviously Musk is very famous for, for his risk-taking, right? I mean, mm-hmm. and of course they're both involved, not coincidentally in uh, the two most significant civilians in space exploration are Musk and Bezos. What is it about, in terms of his like risk analysis and how he goes about risk, because obviously he's not doing stupid things uh even even when he does fail what separates him in that respect in terms of his risk analysis and his ability to um his tolerance for it and his setting himself up for for success while taking big risks well i a couple things one is i think strategic risk taking is a kind of a key it's not just and you mentioned it's not just throwing something against the wall mm-hmm. and hope it works he actually created processes internally to mitigate and minimize or what i call protect the downside of whatever they're doing one of those tools is called a six page narrative mm-hmm. so in 2004 bezos banned powerpoint and keynote presentations at amazon mm-hmm. so they it to present an idea that team presenting actually had to write out a maximum of a six page narrative, starting with a future press release, and then going into frequently asked questions. And what he said was, that requires people to think deeply Mm -hmm. before you ever start. So it's not like, let's try this, or, you know, turn it over to the programmers, and let's see what comes out. It's very thoughtful review. And again, understanding even with all of that, it may not work. And and if you really look at Amazon, they've had lots and lots of failures. Right. But part of what he says is all those failures more than pay uh, up for those successes, as he calls Mm -hmm. them, big bets that we make. And there are a number of them like that that came out of failure, but ended up being big bets. Right. And, and with, with a memo thing that that's particularly interesting to me, especially as, you know, a lawyer who would, you know, 90% of the job is writing. And I remember even reading that even, even at the sort of granular level. So you're sort of chastised if you have bad grammar or bad punctuation yes. and things like that. So really taking your time to detail and write out because, you know, this is one of the things I realized later on in life as well, is that uh, when you actually take pen to paper, I think it's even more helpful sometimes, or type out your ideas and you can challenge them and sort of go to like a, uh, you know, a, a very granular level of what you're trying to achieve and what you believe in. The um, One of the interesting things I saw about him was he mentioned an example of uh, 
being very adverse to talking about, you know, the stock going up or down. Right. Right. And so he, he sort of, he, he, he takes a view of, well, if you want the stock price to go up, then what has to happen? Then, then, you know, one way to do it is for, in this example, he gave one way to do it would be to, uh, you know, save on costs. Well, how do you save on costs by being more efficient? Well, how do you be more efficient by making sure there's less sure deficient packages? Cause that takes up a huge portion of the, of the pie. Right. And then if you can do that, then you're going to have more efficient company, which means the stock will go up. So it's, it's he, that's kind of like, it reminded me of like the sort of Musk first order principles thinking where it's like you get down to what, what are you trying to accomplish now get down to the first order of it in order to, and then work your way up from there. Is, is that sort of his approach with? Yeah, I think so. And, 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 and the way I would phrase it at, at Amazon, and, and he talks about this when executives, new hires come in from the outside, mm-hmm. they're surprised at how little they focus in meetings on financials. Mm-hmm. meaning looking at financial statement, right. he calls those outputs that we don't have much ability to change, but we do have ability to change the inputs. Mm-hmm. So even like stock price, we can't change the stock price, right. but we can focus on customer growth, customer satisfaction, fast delivery, right? All the Really the customer pillars that they have at Amazon, those are the inputs. So they focus on inputs, not outputs, which again, so many CEOs today focus on how's the stock price doing this quarter. Well, Amazon, one of the other characteristics and principles is focusing on the long term and being willing to apply long term thinking, meaning not he, he almost single handedly changed how Wall Street looks at quarterly earnings because right. he mm-hmm. doesn't care about quarterly earnings. Mm-hmm. He does it because it's legally required. But he, he'll say, you know, you know, we're not going to make as much a profit this quarter. But three years from now, you'll see the impact of what we're working on today. So that long-term thinking, I think, is another um, key in terms of how Amazon has been able to grow. Mm-hmm. I think it's a very important point because the uh, I remember, and it, they're still on YouTube. You could look back going years and years, even, even into like the, the 2010s, where you have sort of people making fun of him and scoffing oh, so, yeah. like, you guys haven't created any profit are you ever going to create profit I mean, it, right. and it was sort of it was sort of taken as a um foregone conclusion that this was never going to be a profitable company because and and there were certain points in history where they were they were they were losing a lot of money on paper and then their their losses were expanding 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 and then he was more confident than ever and you, you could see people sort of scoff at that well, um, even even right. the letter he wrote after that six dollar stock price, the mm-hmm. crash, and the first first line of the letter is "ouch," you mm-hmm, know, it's mm-hmm. been a it's been hard this year. Right. And then he goes on to say, when I look at our fundamentals, right, looking back at inputs, he says we're doing really well. Mm-hmm. And I think early on, he intuitively or just because he's so smart, understood that the internet in the late 90s was the land rush. Right. And that the one who got there and could grab as much territory would be the one long-term that would survive and would win. And so every, it's not that they didn't make profit, but they poured everything back into Mm. building infrastructure, building transportation, logistics, better website, more a product available for customers to come into everything was poured back into the company mm-hmm. and most people don't 
didn't understand then. Right, right. Um, right. And, and that and and he was willing to keep to what he thought was right and not change it because of that outside pressure. Right. And and forgive me for drawing the musk analogy. I think that's someone that people understand a bit more because he's so open, right? And Bezos is a bit more reserved and, and his, you know, the time he gives the media is, is a lot more a lot more limited, I would say. But again, it's just the parallels just keep ringing, right? Because here are the two of the most successful, most famous entrepreneurs. And and again, it's like with, with Musk, they would laugh at him for years and years and years right. and say, you're, you're never going to be profitable. You're never going to have, uh, you're never going to meet your uh, your shipment guidelines and, and, and have X many cars on the road. Um, and he kept missing his own deadlines, but he, he, he kept just delivering, delivering, delivering while everyone was making fun of him for not mm-hmm. producing a profit. Right. And I think those two really have revolutionized sort of the, the thinking of, of being more long-term. The other, the other thing that I really, I, I'm always, I admire and I'm always sort of curious about, and I want to see your insight on this. With both of them, they have this un- uncanny ability to have like a 10-year, 100-year vision that they're executing on. And this is obviously uh, illustrated by both their passions for the space industry as well while also being maniacally focused on executing present day objectives. So they can have mm-hmm. sort of both. That's a very hard balance. And yes. what's your sort of insight on that? How, how, how does he sort of go about thinking about these things? Like how does he ha- have a, you know, 100 year time horizon and a, you know, single day time horizon at the same time? Well, a couple, couple thoughts come to mind just as examples. One is Bezos is, is building and it's, almost done a 10,000 year clock on his ranch in West Texas, Hmm. literally a clock designed to run self-sustained for 10,000 years. Wow. Now, again, it's a, you know, some people say it's just somebody with too much money, Mm -hmm. but for him, it's a reminder and and he partnered and the, the names escapes me right now with someone else as a reminder that we can't just have this short-term thinking. We need to think long-term. Even in his 1990, excuse me, 1997 letter, he has this phrase that when he talks about hiring and people working at Amazon, he says it's hard to work here. You know, we have goals, it's exacting, we want A players. And he says, because we're building something great, something we can tell our grandchildren about. So again, very early on, he's thinking long-term. So I think that's just part of who he is. Mm -hmm. I think Blue Origin, right, space company, similar mindset there. He's always been a space geek. You know, he did a cameo appearance on a Star Trek movie. He, you know, his, his grandfather, who he spent the summers with on his ranch in Texas, was um, head of what we now know as DARPA, defense. Oh, really? Yeah. It wasn't DARPA at that point, but it was the beginning organization for the Defense Department Research and Development Mm -hmm. Company. And so you can only imagine what the conversations were like. Mm -hmm. The local library um, in the, the Texas town had a great collection of science fiction. So he read all of that. So Was it near Houston or something? Is that why? No, it's West Texas. It's mm, in the middle of nowhere, um, Texas. So, 
Um, so, you know, again, that always infused with him. His high school valedictorian speech in Miami, Florida, was about how we need to create the mechanisms to move manufacturing into space so that the earth could become a national park and we'd come and visit here. So again, long-term mm -hmm. ideas. Blue Origin was, as he was, I think, making some money and realized, you know, yeah, it's going to be a multi-generational, you know, trek goal. Mm -hmm. But if we start now, we can build. And, and so Blue Origin started in 2000. I think right. uh, most SpaceX was close there. I think 2001, 2002, mm -hmm. you know, both with a similar long-term vision, Musk going to Mars, which Bezos disagrees with. He basically says the earth is the best place we have. We need to protect it. But he wants, his whole goal with Blue Origin is to create the infrastructure so that in a future generation, somebody could start a space company in a dorm room. Because what he said was, mm -hmm. we could start Amazon. I could start Amazon because we already had FedEx, UPS, um, and um, United States Postal Service. We already had credit cards. We already had the internet. Right, right. Amazon didn't have to build mm -hmm. that infrastructure. Mm -hmm. We could build on top of it. Right. And that's his goal for Blue Origin and going to space. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think that's really... Um, absolutely he wanted to do that great and that's just another step on the way to the ultimate goal of bringing the cost down to the point where you can have startup companies now figuring out how do we maximize space and um, I think Musk and Bezos actually are more in line than what seems the press would like. They want to fight, you know? So I'm not sure for Bezos. I, I don't think it's a, a competition as much as some of the press would like to uh, build up. Right. I'll say it that way. The, uh, actually, I want to ask you something real quick. It's unrelated. Did, have you ever, so you're, na you're near Nashville. Have you ever heard about the uh, George Strait and Jeff Bezos are related? No, I didn't. I, I, I read that and I've never heard anything about it since, but I think because his mom's last name is straight, right. I, I believe. And so I think they're like cousins, which I, and I, no one ever talks about that. It's kind of, that's kind I was going to say, I have not heard that. Yeah. And, and obviously for the last few years, I spent a lot of time researching, but I will uh, see if I can find out anything. I'll really, let yeah, you know. Let, let me know. <laughs> um, with regards to uh, going back to sort of Amazon. So what is the, so obviously he's, he's a master of long-term thinking. How, and so how does he sort of balance that with the hyper-focus on achieving scale and supremacy in his field and, and bringing that every single day? And maybe you can sort of tie that into the, the day one thinking that he has, which you mentioned. Yeah, that I... I um... So my principle 14 is believe it's always day one. Mm -hmm. Bezos, again, from the very beginning, every single shareholder letter he's has written, the last paragraph or sentence has something to the effect of, um, you know, we've had lots of problems, but it's um, going. In fact, I'm looking right now at the 97 letter, 
mm -hmm. excuse me, the 2015 letter, here's the sentence. Um, as always, I attach a copy of our original 97 letter, which he has to every single one, which is a whole nother interesting thing. Our approach remains the same and it's still day one. So what is day one? Well, it's for me, it's a mindset. It's mm -hmm. the idea that literally Bezos thinks still today that Amazon's a startup, which is sort of hard to kind of mm -hmm. think about. Right. You, right. Because you think about startups as new, um, not, you know, 20 some years old and, and a trillion and a half dollar market mm -hmm. cap, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's that thinking that everyday employees walk into Amazon thinking like a startup thinking of that excitement, thinking of taking care of customers, thinking of, and he, he was asked, I'm quoting out of the 2016 letter from an uh, employee all hands meeting, he was asked a question, Jeff, what does day two look like, right? He's always talking about mm -hmm. day one. Mm -hmm. And actually there's a YouTube uh, video of his answer to that. What he wrote in the letter was, this is a question I've thought a lot about and his answer is, and I'm quoting, day two is stasis, mm -hmm. followed by irrelevance, mm -hmm. followed by excruciating painful decline, followed by death. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's always day one. Mm -hmm. And if you think about companies that have been successful and are no longer here, Kodak, Blackberry, Blockbuster, Sears, Kmart, pick I mean, right. whatever ones you want to pick. Yeah. It was this idea that they, again, I said earlier, their success made them complacent. Right, rest on laurels. They, right. Yep, rest on your laurels. We can't change it because it's been successful. And, and lots of examples in those companies of opportunities missed. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is he goes on to say, what I'm more interested in is day one defense, meaning how do we protect that day one mindset and not shift into a day two mindset. Mm -hmm. And he has, you know, four items. Um, and let's see if I can, I probably can quote them out of my head. Mm -hmm. um, so number one is customer obsession. Mm -hmm. Number two is a skeptical view of proxies. And for Bezos, a proxy is a process or a procedure that's blindly followed. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. not in service of the customer. You know, that's how many times old. have you called up mm -hmm. customer service or contacted? That's right. not our policy. Right, right, right. So sometimes you need them. He's not arguing that you shouldn't have them. And there needs to be skepticism about if those still serve the customers well. That's so that was key, number right? two, yeah. mm -hmm. right? And then this one I think is really key, an eager adoption of external trends. So looking out future focused what's coming mm -hmm. that we need to pay attention to um and he actually identifies in the letter you know machine learning as mm -hmm. one of those future trends and let it other places he talks about we may not have the skills right now to take advantage of that trend but that probably means we need to develop those skills internally and AWS is an example of that. Right, I mean, right, there are, again, right. several examples. Yeah. And then the fourth one is high velocity decision making. Mm -hmm. Now for Bezos, again, another tool for how do you move fast enough 
he says there are two types of decisions. Type one are big, bet the company, you do it slowly, as much information as you get, can get, and then make a decision mm -hmm. because they're hard to reverse. But he said most decisions at most companies are not type one, they're type two. You make a decision with at most 70% of the information you wish you had. And if you make the wrong decision, you quickly pivot, change, make another decision, go back, start over. He said most decisions at a company are type two. What happens as a company grows is they tend to shift those type two decisions to a type one process. Right, right. Multiple layers of, of you know, approval, right? And it slows down growth. When you slow down growth, you slow down opportunities. That's he, he was also the one who said that uh, the air on the side of action was. Yes. Yeah. One of their leadership principles is default mm -hmm. to action. Mm -hmm. You're better off taking a step. And that really ties into this decision-making, high-velocity decisions. Mm -hmm. You decide, move forward, change if you need to, um, and, and keep going. All right. So it's, it's very much an um, embracing of, of experimentation. Yes. In fact, I, th I, I believe, you know, people say Amazon's an innovative company. I, mm -hmm. I, I, I sort of don't agree with that, actually. Amazon's an inventive company. Mm. And they're an invention factory, right, meaning, right. right, they, how many new businesses have they invented or grown when most companies do one thing well? Mm -hmm. Amazon does mm -hmm. multiple things right, right, well, right. right? And I think part of that is because they're always looking for ways, and again, I said this earlier, to invent on behalf of the customer. Um, Kindle's a great, easy example. Mm -hmm. Kindle was released in 2007. It took them three years to develop it. They started with, quote, his words, the audacious goal of replacing something that's had the same basic form for 500 years, a book. And they did things, they were, they were not, the Kindle was not the first e-reader, but they did things that were so different and customer focused. Mm -hmm. They did e-ink so you could read it anywhere. They did, um, you did not have to tether the device to a computer because it had cellular built into it Mm -hmm. And the goal was to be able to purchase any book available in the world and have it on that device in 60 seconds or less. Mm -hmm. And they did. And that's why they changed how people consume books. Right. Yeah. And, and obviously AWS, which is, I, I don't know if you have an opinion about this. I think at some point they're, they're going to either have to spin it off by regulators, or maybe they'll spin off themselves. I mean, that in itself can be, you know, a top 10 company at some point, oh, no, I, right? I mean, it's, it's yeah. unbelievable. They, they control a significant portion of the internet's infrastructure with that. Right. Correct. Um, I, I, it'll be, in, I, there's certainly lots of talk and obviously with the current administration, lots of antitrust and right, all of those kinds of discussions right. going on now. Um, the FTC chair, by uh, the way, she she oh yeah she came to prominence based on the Amazon antitrust yep. uh, article. Oh right? no, no yeah. question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and, and so that'll be interesting uh, to see what impact that has. I, I am skeptical 
that it actually can be broken apart. But mm. I don't know. I mean, I just, I, th I think they're so intertwined together because AWS started as a Amazon service. Mm -hmm. So um, Bezos, uh, I can't remember the year right now, but early 2000s, Bezos said, we, to everybody at Amazon, the only way you'll be able to continue to develop is APIs. Now he didn't call it that because that wasn't the name at the time, but direct connections, APIs. So everything that Amazon runs on from website to catalog, to logistics, to everything is tied directly into AWS as their you know, infrastructure uh, to put in place. So no question, there'll be a lot. I, I, I non-attorney, not an expert in any stretch of the imagination. Uh, in order for the antitrust, my opinion is, in order for the antitrust to go through or be uh, decided, uh, it'll take a change in the law uh, because the current um, basis is based on customer harm. Right, right, right. The customers, you know, harmed by it. Now, again, she made some interesting, I read her paper, mm -hmm. she made some interesting arguments that harm can happen di in a different way than mm -hmm. was just say, financial reinterpretation, higher, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Reinterpretation of what that might mean. And mm -hmm. that may fly. Yeah, uh, we'll see. Yeah. yeah, I suspect. Yeah, I suspect it probably will, but I, it, it won't be Amazon first. I think Google's probably the the most clear. Cut well, I feel like Facebook antitrust, and Google and then Facebook, are and then, much, and then probably Amazon third. Yeah, could be. Yep. Yeah, um, ha with respect to the there, obviously their their size is absolutely massive now, and, and the day one thing. How how did they go about having a flexibility? So giant corporations, they're synonymous for just being very slow and bureaucratic and overburdensome. That's that's why they do eventually fall into stasis and die. How, how can it, how can a giant corporation buck that trend and still be flexible and um and actually, you know, there's there's another thing I, I want to ask you about in addition to that is speaking of innovation, is the um I don't know if you have an opinion on this on this bit. So they haven't really embraced cryptocurrency yet, which seems like it kind of would have been a segue to a certain extent, especially with their, their marketplace and some of the other tech companies, um, you know, obviously like PayPal and Visa have, have embraced more of it. Uh, why do you think that is? And does it fall into what you said that they want to be inventive and not innovative? Or do you, do you see a, um, do you see a, them positioning themselves in that market? Okay, so let me address that yeah. one first, and then we can mm -hmm. come back to we'll your, come back, uh, right. other, your other question. Um, I, I, so there are a couple of things, um, and, and I'm going to make a corollary here to um, a comment he made in the, I think, 2000, and I, I don't remember, 8, 9, 10 letter. Mm -hmm. I think it was 6, actually, 2006. He addressed this comment, uh, question he gets jeff when are you going to open physical stores you said i get this question a lot and opening a physical retail location doesn't meet our criteria for where we should spend capital and part of it is it's a old and cagey ancient business right and and the phrase i want to focus on he says we haven't figured out how to have meaningful differentiation in retail 
And I think that's, he talks about it with physical stores. And by the way, they did start opening up physical stores. And now they're opening more and more, even latest, we'll see if it's true or not, you know, opening up, you know, small department stores uh, for that physical presence. But part of what they did meaningfully differentiated is the just walk out technology, meaning there are no checkouts. There are cameras and, and sensors watching what you put in your cart and then charging you for that. I've done it myself. It's absolutely mm-hmm. astounding. Right, right. Um, so the question, that's where I'm going to tie it into crypto. The question is, and, and there have been some rumors about them starting a group mm-hmm. and I think, again, testing, but I think the idea is going to be how do we have meaningful differentiation from just a Me Too product? Mm-hmm. They don't like to do Me Too products, meaning they... As he says, we, we, we pay attention to competitors, but we don't focus on competitors because we want to do something different. Mm-hmm. So is that, and I'm, I'm speculating at this right, point, right. but that would be my take on why not this or pick any other type mm-hmm, of industry mm-hmm. that, that you might think they should go into. And right. now I don't remember your first question. The, the, so. the, the other question was, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the other question was re- in regards to their, oh, their size. How, how do they size? How do they keep nimbleness? Right. Right. So another tool, kind of like the six-page memo, mm-hmm. is what's commonly known as a um, two-pizza team, mm-hmm. um, meaning teams at Amazon are only as big as can be fed by two pizzas. Mm-hmm. So the idea here is you keep teams small. So you keep communication granular. Um, and a- at one point, there's a story that people were having trouble keeping up on different teams and what they were doing. And so a group came in with this great idea to Bezos that we're going to create a collaboration platform. And he was, he like slammed his hand on the table and he said, we don't need a collaboration platform. We need smaller teams so that that communication is natural, mm-hmm. which is again, counterintuitive. Right. What's missing with just the two pizza team though, is the concept of a single threaded leader. And I think that's the key, meaning right. that team has one leader who is tasked with whatever the deliverable for that team. Now understand if it's a big project, there could be 200 teams, right? Right. But then there are 200 leaders mm-hmm. taking care of this piece of the project. And so the, so they're not communicating with every team about mm-hmm. where we are. Mm-hmm. They're making high velocity decisions. They're living with their decisions or changing them. And then, then they're kind of plugging them into the overall project. And there's a single threaded leader going up only a couple steps though, not multiple steps. I think that's the key Mm -hmm. to what you said is that tendency to get very bureaucratic. Right. And it places an amazing amount of trust in employees. Mm -hmm. No, it's brilliant. I mean, it's a, uh, almost like a federalism approach, decentralized approach to a certain extent. Yeah. yeah, I wish our government ran that way. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. What else? What else are the um? For there's one other question I want to ask you about slightly unrelated. What else are the 
sort of counterintuitive implementations that Amazon and Bezos have, have done that, that have contributed to their success, in your opinion? Um, so uh, again, my 14 principles are broken mm-hmm. down into four cycles, test, right. build, accelerate, and sale, right, right. Uh, scale. And in the second cycle build, there's a principle I call understand your flywheel. Mm-hmm. And that was key from a, uh, 2001 on. So quick background. Flywheel concept comes from Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, um, published actually in October of 2001. Chapter eight is all about the flywheel and the doom loop. In August of 2001, Bezos invited Collins to come to a senior t- leadership team meeting offsite. Mm-hmm. And they spent the whole day just talking about the flywheel. And they literally sketched out, the team did, what Amazon's flywheel was. And Bezos thought that was so important to Amazon that he actually didn't want anybody to talk about the flywheel for a number of years. But the flywheel, the center part for Amazon is growth. And then it, um, what are the inputs? So the concept of the flywheel, right? Big, Mm -hmm. heavy, hard to get going. But once you get it going, you know, it's easier to keep it going. Right. So for Amazon, the key was, customers coming to their website. Mm -hmm. So one of the inputs was getting more customers to the website. If they got more customers to the website, they could have more negotiating power with manufacturers to lower the prices. Lower prices would generate word of mouth for current customers. Hey, you ought to check out Amazon, which would bring more customers in. So it became this, um, they called it actually the virtuous cycle. And then they added in the early 2000s, third-party sellers. Mm-hmm, Counterintuitive. I mean, think about it. How many companies do you know, even today, that allow third-party independent sellers to sell on a e-commerce site? Walmart just started doing it. Right, right. Target doesn't do it, right? I mean, it's so counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. But what they realized is if we have wider selection from third-party sellers, that'll bring more customers in to feed our flywheel. Mm -hmm. And that'll give us more negotiating power with manufacturers because we got now bigger traffic and it just keeps that flywheel moving. Um, So I think that's key. And even if you look at acquisitions, Whole Foods or, you know, PillPack or Mm -hmm. any, any of those, it's, it's this whole idea of continuing to feed that flywheel to keep that growth momentum going. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Um, One last thing I want to ask you, which is more Bezos related than Amazon related and sort of gets to who he is. Assuming it's not purely altruistic, uh, 100% altruistic, why do you think someone like him would buy the Washington Post based on on what you've read about and analyze about his mentality and the way he makes decisions what, what do you think it is? Um, I actually think it is, it's a couple of things. I, I do think altruism is part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, two, um, Graham, he was pretty good friends with Graham. And evidently, Graham, I forgot the guy's first Graham name. Graham, was, was that the- He was or, the owner. Or, 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 at, right. uh, uh, yeah. Um, Phil Graham, maybe. Uh, I can't, I can't mm-hmm. remember that. Um, um 
evidently he made a really good um, reason why. And, and, and again, this is sort of tied into the altruism, but what Bezos has said is, um, you know, we need to have those independent voices. And I do believe um, from what I hear out of Washington Post and other sources that he is pretty hands-on except for the technology. So he has come in and helped as I guess to me obvious, but has helped um, Washington Post with its technology from the newsroom to printing to write other, other things and mm -hmm. has turned that into a small side business for Washington Post, making that available to mm -hmm. other newspaper mm -hmm. firms. Now, certainly over the last few years that all of that's been called into question and um, right, all the political conversation around him directing it, et cetera. I, right now, I don't, I haven't seen enough evidence to even make me think that that's happening. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, that's, it, it would say, uh, I mean, you know, one of the, one of the sort of hallmarks, I think, in American history were the uh, most powerful people in the world wanting to control their image uh, yes. and, and, and having influence in the media as well. So it's not a surprise. Um, well, and, and again, know. even with that, I would say, I mean, there are a number of articles on the Washington Post critical of Amazon, right? So it's, it's not like, I mean, those to me are indicators that mm -hmm. there isn't a filter there to, to only say good things about Amazon. Right. right. Okay, yeah, I, uh, I think I've seen one or two. I, I don't, track the post as much anymore i used to yeah um but yeah that's no, it's definitely very interesting well anyways your book is fascinating um it's called the bezos letters and uh i will put a link to it in, in our in right. our bio so other people other people can see is there anywhere, anywhere else people can find you well there's more information on the book website which is mm -hmm. the bezosletters.com mm -hmm. and uh if you do get the book there's uh, an additional workbook to help you work through the principles and see uh uh, how they mind their own business. Very cool. Very cool. Well, Steve Anderson, thank you so much for joining me. Ashton, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. If you enjoyed our show, please click subscribe to stay up to date with our YouTube channel and podcast and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so that we can keep delivering guys some great content. Thanks again, and we will be back next week. Oh, man. And probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started.